0: here 's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester now for those of you that haven't been uh, part of our study in Ezekiel um, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel um, are basically a vision that Ezekiel received from the Lord he was already in Babylon so um, uh, he had been in Babylon for about 25 years, roughly, when he received this this vision. Uh, about 14 years um, prior to receiving this vision, these eight chapters, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. And uh, in Ezekiel 40 and 42, Ezekiel was told to measure a temple that he sees in this vision. And the temple dimensions... Are massively larger than any of Israel's temples that have been built in the past, and uh, you know the Bible teaches that there's going to be a third temple built uh, either right before the the Great Tribulation or right. After the great tribulation starts in Jerusalem, and uh, some people say, "Well, this must be speaking about that temple." Well, the problem is, if you take the measurements of this temple that Ezekiel received in this vision, it's uh, it's way too large to be describing that third temple that's going to be built, and simply because of the uh, square footage of real estate. When you get into this passage and you start digging through the and and and. and Calculating out these, these measurements, the square footage of the real estate of this, this temple and the ground surrounding this temple is almost as large as the current old city of Jerusalem today. And so um, I do not believe that these are, uh, this is speaking of that temple. Um, and I also don't believe that these chapters are to be taken in a symbolic sense, that this is just symbolic of something else. And for one reason, for me, anyways, is because of the minute details that Ezekiel's told to record. record. Um, it, it just doesn't make sense, in my mind anyways, for a symbolic interpretation. And then there's another reason, and I think this reason maybe is, carries more weight. And that is, um, if you look at all the past prophecies and scriptures that have been already fulfilled they've always been fulfilled literally, exactly as God said. And so uh, there's a precedent there. I don't think there's any reason uh, to suddenly all say, well, now this prophecy is, you know, all these other prophecies were fulfilled literally, but this one, it's got to be symbolic because it just doesn't make sense to us. And uh, so I, I have a hard time with that. But I will freely admit, that there are some real difficulties with a literal interpretation, and we talked a little bit about that last week, um, and things that you know I don't understand. And it's interesting if you look at other commentaries and other you know, there's a lot of people that don't understand this. So I think I'm in probably in good company, but I trust God's word, and uh, I find no other reasonable way to approach these than a literal interpretation. And so, what do we do with that? Well, in my estimation. Chapters 40 through 48 comprise, this vision that Ezekiel receives comprises uh, a millennial temple that's going to be built during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And if you're interested, if you, know, if you missed last week, uh, with the message is up on the, on the uh, website, and we also have podcasts available if you want to follow along and maybe catch up to us uh, to, to dig into that a little bit more. But we're this morning at chapter 43. And so beginning with verse 1, it says, "...afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city." The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, the first thing to notice here is that God... Appeared to Ezekiel exactly the same way he appeared in his earlier visions. God didn't appear to Ezekiel in different forms and in different ways and stuff. It, it, this really speaks to uh, a word that's called, it talks about the fact that God doesn't change. It. It's immutability. I think I pronounced that right. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And you know, people change. Uh, you know, uh, there's people that I grew up with that if they saw me today, of course, I don't, you know, I'm not, in, you know, I lived in California at the time. So they, unless you're on Facebook, they, you know, I don't meet them or anything. Uh, I've changed. They've certainly changed. Now, hopefully, and I I think I have changed for the better uh, because I wasn't walking with the Lord back then, but now I am. And uh, so people change sometimes for the better, hopefully for the better, sometimes for the worse, Right sometimes people people that you knew and you, you, you thought you knew real well and you meet them you know years later you go, man, you're a different person, and that's because people change uh, governments change, life changes you know one of the most frustrating things for me is Facebook changes, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know i get I get used to it just one way and then, and then it's different. And I'm like, oh man, I've got to figure this all out unfortunately, my wife is likes that stuff and she gets into it, and she can kind of kind of walk me through some stuff but things change. You know how many of you have depended on verses like Romans 10:9? Romans 10:9 says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, you know, those are verses like that. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I cling to those verses. Whenever you get a new Bible, man, make sure those verses are in there, right? I cling to those verses. I My, my hope, my future depends on those verses. Can you imagine, though, when you die and you stand before the Lord and all of a sudden the Lord says, uh, you know, uh, sorry, that's expired, you know, that's changed. Uh, it's, it's different now. Uh, you know, the covenant's changed. I'm sorry, didn't you get the notice or whatever, you know. And, and uh, can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, we depend on God's Word to be true, right? We depend on God to be true. James calls God the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And that is such a comfort to me. God doesn't change. He remains faithful. So that's the first thing that jumped out at me these visions. They're just like all the other visions, God doesn't change. The second thing to notice, and I think this probably had even a a greater impact on Ezekiel, is that, uh, you know, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Why would that be so important to Ezekiel? Well, you recall that Ezekiel was a priest, he was raised up to be a priest. But he went into captivity before he was 30 years old. And at 30 years old, that's when Levites, young men, Levites, well, they weren't young, 30 years old, but um, they they entered into the priesthood and they would serve in the temple. And so for all your life, you're growing up as a Levite and your dad's done that, your grandfather's done that, your great-grandfather's done that, and you're raised and and you're told from the minute you're born, you're going to be a priest serving the Lord in the temple. What an honor that would be. But Ezekiel... Never got that chance. He ended up going to captivity before he reached 30 years old. And so as he's in captivity, and then on top of that, the temple is destroyed. And earlier in chapters 10 and 11, Ezekiel, he's in Babylon, but he's taken in a vision to Jerusalem, uh, back to Solomon's temple, because at that time it was still existing, and there was priests that were still ministering, or if you can call it ministering, in the temple. And he finds out that, no, they weren't really ministering. They were, they were worshiping other gods in the temple. It was all kinds of abomination and sin that was occurring, and God was showing that to Ezekiel behind closed doors. And in chapters 10 and 11, to Ezekiel's dismay and grief, he witnesses the Lord departing the temple. You can just read through those chapters. God leaves the temple in chapters 10 and 11 of Ezekiel. Uh, it, that would have had such a profound impact on Ezekiel personally. So now, in God's great mercy and God's grace, he's communicating to Ezekiel and to the captives, hey, there's a time coming when I'm going to come back into the temple. I'm going to dwell among you once more. Can you imagine the, just the hope and the encouragement and the inspiration that would have gave to the, to the captives and, and to Ezekiel? they in, in Babylon, that God hasn't forsaken them. He will once more dwell among them in this future temple that Ezekiel's being told, hey, measure this out, record it all out, and tell the children of Israel about it. And so now, starting in verse 6, God starts speaking to Ezekiel. Verse 6 it says, Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple, while a man stood beside me. And we read, if you didn't read before, you wouldn't know, who's this man that's standing beside Ezekiel? Well, earlier in this vision, in chapter 40, there was a man in bronze that appears to Ezekiel, and he leads Ezekiel through the temple. And it's not Jesus. I don't believe it's Jesus. I believe it's an angel. And this angel is standing right next to Ezekiel as the Lord is speaking to Ezekiel. Verse 7, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, And the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry, or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places, when they set their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me. They defiled my holy name by by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have... Have consumed them uh, in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement, its exits. And it's entrances, it's entire design and all it's ordinances, all it's forms and all it's laws, write it down in their sight so that they may keep it's whole design, all it's ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy because this is the law of the temple." And so now, finally, Ezekiel's given the reason why God had him go through and measure and record to the min- most minute details. When we went through chapters forty and forty through forty-two, uh, you know, it was like, wow! I don't know if you ever read it. It's it's like it's it's some just there's cubits here, rods there, you know, vestibules here, and it's like, wow, this is really intense. Um, why would God do that? Well, the reason why the vision is that God is giving a message to the captives of of Israel, and it 's a measure excuse me it 's a message of reconciliation god 's once more going to be reconciled to them it 's a, it's a message of restoration god 's going to restore the, to them to worshiping Him in the temple, and it 's a message of hope i don 't know about you, but man, I, I, I need messages of hope sometimes from the Lord. A time is coming when they're no longer going to be or excuse me, when they are going to be ashamed of their spiritual adultery, and they're going to put away their idols and their abominations, and God's going to restore them to serving him in his new temple, or in this new temple. Now, did they deserve it? Absolutely not, right? They didn't deserve it. In fact, the reason why they're in captivity now and the reason why the temple was destroyed now was because they continually provoked the Lord God of Israel. They continually turned their hearts away from Him. He would send prophet after prophet after prophet and they would continually ignore the prophets or they would abuse the prophets or in some cases they'd even kill the prophets. They don't deserve to be brought back into the land of Israel. They don't deserve to have another temple. But it's not based on them. It's based on God's grace you and i we don't deserve heaven we don't deserve forgiveness there's nothing that we've done to earn salvation it's all because of god's grace verse 17 excuse me 13 these are the measurements of the altar in cubits the cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth the base of one cubit high and one cubit wide, with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base of the ground to the lower edge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high, with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 wide, square its four corners. The ledge 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides. With a rim of a half and a cubit around it, its base one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. Now, when we were talking in chapter 40, we found out that the cubit is... Well, it's a cubit plus a hand breadth is what the cubits are, and a cubit is from the tip of your finger down to your elbow. That was generally what it was—a cubit measurement in those days. It's about 18 inches, roughly. And you add a hand breadth, another four inches, maybe five inches. It's roughly around 21 inches. So that's kind of the thing. Now, when you start reading this size of this altar, when I started reading it, if I didn't, you know, know any better, just reading these verses by itself, I'd think that this altar was going to be built in Texas. Right? Because everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> really, seriously. Because, you know, y- you look at the altar in Exodus chapter 27, it's about seven and a half feet square, it's about four and a half feet high. This altar, just the base ledge alone, is 24 and a half feet square. The altar itself is 21 feet square, and it's over 12 feet high. This is a massive. Altar in this temple. You know, when I look at that, I go, you know, not only are they going to have a restored temple in the millennium, but it's going to be bigger and better than even Solomon's. I mean, God's, he's just, it's, it's this is, this is going to be huge and massive. Verse 18, and he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God. These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. "'On the second day you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar, as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish, and a ram from the flock without blemish. When you offer them before the Lord, the priests shall throw salt on them, and they will offer them up as a burn offering to the Lord.' Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day and thereafter that the priests shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord God." So here we have this altar, this massive altar, and it's being consecrated through these sacrifices, very similar to how Solomon (coughs) consecrated the altar in the temple that he built. And the Levites, who are going to be consecrating this altar in the millennium, are going to be of the seed of Zadok. Well, who's Zadok? There's actually a few different Zadoks in the Old Testament, but I think it's this Zadok. Zadok was a priest in Jerusalem, at the time of King David. He's about 11th in generation descended from Aaron, the first high priest. And when King Saul died, Zadok joined himself to David. He started serving David. And he supported David during even David's dark times, the times when uh, his own son, Absalom, led many people astray. Some of David's most trusted counselors rebelled against David and there was a conspiracy and and, and they went with his son Absalom. Well, during that time, Zadok remained faithful to David. Also when Adonijah rebelled against David, Zadok remained faithful to David. Many other people deserted David, but Zadok was one of them who did not. And his sons evidently also remained faithful when so many of the other Levites had turned away uh, from the Lord before they went into captivity. And God remembers their faithfulness. And so God, I think, um, also remembers Zadok's faithfulness to David. And, and, and so uh, they are the ones, how God knows, you know, of course we don't know who's the sons of Zadok, but, but God knows who they are, and these, these people are going to be in the, uh, in the millennium consecrating this altar. Now, this portion of Scripture here is one of the greatest difficulties with interpreting this literally. Why? Well, okay, why are there blood sacrifices and offerings in the millennium? After all, wasn't the sacrificial system under the old covenant? I mean, the Bible in Hebrew says it was just a copy and shadow of better things to come. The substance of is Jesus Christ. So all these all these sacrifices and all these these. these You know, the Levitical sacrificial system, they are just a copy and a shadow of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled that. Didn't Jesus once and for all put away sin by the sacrifice of himself? And the answer is yes. Amen, he did. But you have to remember, under the old covenant, sacrifices and offerings, they only covered sins. They didn't remove sins. They didn't put them away. They only covered over sins. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for your and my sin, he put away sins once and for all. But just as the old sacrifices under the old covenant, they didn't really remove sin. They basically were there to point the Jewish person forward to Jesus Christ. So they would look forward to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus And I think, and and this is my opinion, that these sacrifices in the millennium, again, they're not going to remove sins because Jesus Christ did that once and for all, just as it says in Hebrews. However, I think that these sacrifices are going to point back to Christ, kind of as, as a memorial. You know, we celebrate communion. Jesus isn't, you know, re-dying on the cross and re-shedding his blood for us each and every day when we celebrate communion, we're remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. And so I think in the same way that's what these sacrifices are going to be. And you might say, you know, I'm just not sure about this, man. I, that's kind of a tough thing to swallow, hard to wrap my head around it. It's hard for me to wrap my head around it too. And it's it's hard to understand. But you know what? If you take a literal interpretation, all I can say is this is what God says is going to take place. And I'll just have to trust that that's that's what's going to happen, as God says. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east. But it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter it. Uh, enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed 70 AD by Titus Vespasian, Many centuries later, or at some point later, I should say, I don't even know when, I didn't really do the research on it, but many centuries ago, from now anyways, some Muslim ruler took that eastern gate that was in existence, or still is in existence, and they sealed it up so that people couldn't enter onto the Temple Mount through that eastern gate. If you go to Jerusalem, in fact, uh, we went to Israel once on a trip, and uh, we went on the Temple Mound, and the Temple Mound is actually controlled by Jordanian soldiers. It's the, they call them the Wakef, I think is what they call them. But uh, anyways, so we're walking around at this on this Temple Mound, and, and just kind of we just kind of all spread out in different ways. And this one uh, girl who was our travel agent, she came to Teresa and I, and I don't know if there was anybody else with us, but she said, I want to show you something. Let's come over here to the east side. And, and she we walked around the temple, you know, the, the, the Dome of the Rock. We walked around, and we were at the east side, and... Facing the east side is is the Mount of Olives, and uh, as we're going there, there's this there's this Jordanian guy, and you wouldn't know he was a soldier except he was carrying a machine gun. Actually, wasn't he was sitting in a lawn chair? It's like he was sunning himself, but he had a like an AK forty seven sitting on his lap, right. And so we're walking over to him, and he's just kind of watching us, and, and she's like, you know, that's, they sealed that because they don't want the Messiah to come, come from the Mount of Olives, as the Bible says he's going to come in through the east gate. And so they, they've sealed it so he can't come in. And then if you look past that east gate, there's a cemetery. A, 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 a Muslim or Islamic cemetery, and you know, no good Jewish person is going to walk across a grave, so they're going to keep the Messiah. And you know, and I was like, wow, it's pretty interesting. That guy didn't like us standing there, and he told us to leave. And and he, all, he was kind of like just tapping his gun, like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, like, okay, we're out of here. Um, so if you go to Jerusalem, you can see that today that gate. Um, And it might very well have been uh, sealed up because of this prophecy that we just read. However, and this is what I really believe, that gate that exists today that's sealed up, I don't think it's this same gate that exists in the millennium. Why? Again, dimensions of the temple grounds, the temple and the grounds are vastly different dimensions. As we talked about last week too, the landscape of the earth is going to be different during the millennium Uh, Different than what exists today. And this gate here in this chapter leads into the sanctuary of the Millennium Temple. So I don't think it's the same gate. Now, Ezekiel is told that this gate will be shut because that's the gate that the Lord entered through the temple. But now we're mentioned, there's another person introduced into here. We're told that the prince is going to be able to eat a sacrificial meal at the vestibule, which means a porch, of this gate. Well, who is this prince? I don't think it's Jesus. Why? Because in chapter 45, this prince is going to offer sin offerings. Why would Jesus offer sin offerings? He was the sin offering. In chapter 46, this prince worships the Lord, and also his sons are mentioned. So, I don't think that this prince is Jesus Christ. Now, some people, and I think they have pretty good f- ground for saying this, some people believe that this prince is going to be none other than King David resurrected to reign second under Jesus Christ in the millennium. I don't know. We'll have to wait until we, we're there to experience it to know. Verse 9, or excuse me, verse 4. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell on my face, and the Lord said to me, "'Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears "'all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord "'and all its laws. "'Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary.'" Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations." When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to me, to be in my sanctuary, to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Here, Ezekiel is told to mark well or to pay close attention to who may enter the sanctuary. And he says, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter the sanctuary. You know, God gave the Jewish person, the Jewish, the Jews, the children of Israel, the outward sign of circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh. But it really, it all along, was an outward sign. All along, God had intended for His people to have circumcised hearts. You know, what, it, what we're talking about is a cutting away of all that is ruled by the flesh in our hearts. God always wanted us to have uncircumcised hearts. Being uncircumcised in the flesh was just a sign of that. The problem with the Jewish people was that they glorified that external ritual and they put their trust in that ritual as opposed to what it was meant to represent. You know, we see that today, right? We see that today with rituals like baptism. People glorify and put their trust in the external ritual of baptism. But just like circumcision, baptism is an outer sign of an inner work in the heart of man. We're not to trust in ourselves. You're not saved by your baptism. You're saved by your faith in Christ and Christ alone. But your baptism is a sign that you have you're identifying with Jesus Christ with his death, burial, and resurrection. And you're, you're, you're saying, I, I'm identifying with you, Jesus. It's, a, it's an outward sign of an inner work in your heart. Anything that we do as ritual, be it circumcision, be it baptism, be communion, whatever it is, if there's no corresponding reality in our lives, it's meaningless to God. And so just like today, in those days, people put their trust in external rituals. Verse 10. And the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house." They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them, because they ministered to them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God. They shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near to minister to me as priest, nor come near near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place." But they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has been done to it. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. So all the Levites, even those who strayed away from the Lord, they will have duties to fulfill in the millennial temple. However, only the sons of Zadok who remained faithful are going to be allowed into the most holy place to minister to the Lord in the sanctuary. Verse 17, And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not close themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers, and put on other garments. And in their holy garments they shall, uh, they shall not sanctify the people. So here we have this, this command that the priests are going to be required to change into linen garments whenever they're ministering within the gates of the inner court. And they're not to wear any wool. Uh, or any clothing that's going to cause any sweat, and you know that's actually mentioned in the Old Testament as well. You see, why would God? Why does God care if they sweat or not? It's it's a sign because you see, ministering to the Lord should never be burdensome. It should never cause sweat. Whenever I minister to the Lord and sweat and toil and labor is involved, you know what that tells me? It, it's it's I'm doing it in my own strength, and it's not a joy. And it's not a pleasure. Uh, when, I, when I find in those situations, it's, the reality is, I'm not doing it by the strength that the Holy Spirit supplies. I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I don't know if you ever experienced that. You know, It's, it's usually a wake-up call. It's like, man, I'm, I'm getting so frustrated and so burnt out. And it's like, well, that's because I'm doing it in my own strength rather than in the strength that the Holy Spirit supplies. God doesn't want serving him to ever be a burden you know the same thing goes for giving last Wednesday night we talked about uh, we were in second Corinthians and we talked about how God loves a cheerful giver, and it literally means a hilarious giver, someone who's just full of joy and wants to give and if and we talked about this Wednesday night, if you're grudgingly giving or you're under you feel like you're under some compulsion to give like well, everybody in the room's giving, I better give you know um, don't give because God doesn't want your money in fact he doesn't need your money he wants he only wants you to give if you're giving it in a joyful heart. If you just, Lord, I'm just offering this to you. Lord, you've given me so much, I just want to give back to you. And you're doing it joyfully and not grudgingly. Then God receives it. God accepts it. But otherwise, man, keep your money, because God doesn't need it. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, serving the Lord should never be a burden. And when you, if you ever get into that place where you are circling, you know, this is getting to be a real bummer check your heart because you're probably doing it in your own strength. Verse 20. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not take as wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So these priests are going to be... One of their charges is to teach the people during the millennium to discern between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And, and, you know, there is such a need for discernment, even in the body of Christ today. You know, I honestly believe we're approaching the last days. And the Bible says that in the last days that false teachings and false teachers are going to abound. And the Bible says men are going to become lovers of self. And today, the message that we hear so often, unfortunately, even through some ministries, is that we need to love ourselves. You know, we need to forgive ourselves. We need to accept ourselves. We need to deliver ourselves. And yet, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus says, man, die to yourself, deny yourself. And yet, in these last days, there's a there's this, you know, you, you need to accept, you need to love yourself, you need to forgive yourself. That's false teachings. And these are happening in the last days. And so we need to discern between the truth and error, between the holy and unholy. And that's what these priests are going to be, one of their tasks to be. You know, it's interesting. You think about that and you go, wait a minute. You know, Jesus is in the temple, you know, and and how can people... You know, fall for false teachings and fall for that during the millennium, and that, that I always thought about that. Why? Well, you know, Revelation twenty verse seven tells us that at the end of these a thousand years, at the end of the millennium, Satan is once more going to be loosed to deceive the nations once more, and there's going to be a worldwide rebellion. All the nations of the earth are going to descend on the camp of the saints in the beloved city. It says in Revelation but God, fire from God's going to destroy them, and Satan and his followers, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. You know, again, it's hard, in our current understanding, it's hard to fathom that. It's like, how, you know, Jesus is there. They can see Jesus. How can how can they fall for false teachings? How can they be deceived and turn away from Him when Jesus is going to physically dwell on the earth? The only thing that I can think of I think God is going to once and for for all time show mankind that it's not our environment that causes us to sin. What causes us to sin is our sin nature. It's it's the wickedness of our own hearts that causes us to sin. It's not some external thing that causes us to sin. It may have an influence of some respect, but deep down it's the wickedness in our own hearts. It's the, only, it's the wickedness in the heart of man, our sin nature, that causes us to sin. It's not something external from us. And I think a thousand years of, of you know, life is going to be so different than what we know it today. It's, it's gonna, there's going to be this peace, and there's gonna, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, no taxes. I mean, it's going to be wonderful during the millennium. And yet people are still going to rebel. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you're in a good environment, you still have a wicked heart. And so there's going to be those that are going to rebel against the Lord, and I think God's just going. To, that's just proof. I mean, after all, look at Adam and Eve. They walked with God in the Garden of Eden. They still fell. They had the best parent. I mean, there's no better parent than God the Father, and yet they rebelled and they sinned against Him. Verse twenty four. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings, and they shall follow, or excuse me, hallow my Sabbaths. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person, only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister may they defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they shall count seven days for him, and on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering. In the inner court, says the Lord God, it shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priest's. Also you shall give to the priest the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your heart on your house. The priest shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. You know, again, as we read through these commandments or these requirements for the priest in the millennium, it sounds so much like the requirements that God had for the priest under the old covenant. And... Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so all these requirements, all these things that, the, that they're going to have to fulfill or that they had, to, they had to do in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it basically revealed their inability to fulfill all those requirements. And it was to point them to Jesus Christ who fulfills the law for, thus, for us and for them. So again, keeping the law under the old covenant pointed us to Christ, and so since Christ fulfilled the law in His sinful, his sinless life, excuse me, all that I can think of these requirements—they're basically again—they're a reminder of what Christ did for us. And I'm going to just go real quickly through Ezekiel chapter 45, um, and then we'll wrap it up. But Ezekiel now is given some measurements for the land. Uh, that will surround the temple. So, verse one it says: "Moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord, a holy section of land. It shall be its length shall be twenty five thousand cubits and the width ten thousand. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Of this shall, there shall be a square foot, excuse me, a square plot for the sanctuary. I apologize for reading really fast. If you're trying to follow along, I'm just trying to get through these three chapters here, but." Uh, Anyways, so this district, uh, you shall measure 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide. In it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, all the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. Um, it's interesting that of all the dimensions that we've been reading in these last few chapters, Verse 1, the dimensions in Hebrew simply reads 25,000 by 20, 10,000, and there's no measurement. There's no, it doesn't say cubits or reeds. So some, translat- some translators, and maybe the one you're following says reeds or rods, and that would make this plot of land 50 miles by 20 miles. Uh, some translators say cubits, and that would make this 8.3 by 3.3 miles. I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to wait until we we know for sure when we get there. You know, I was thinking, well, maybe we could tell if you get, you know, if, when we get to this to Jerusalem and, and maybe there's like shuttle buses or something, then we'll know it's the the bigger dimension. But I can't walk 8.3 miles. Well, I can, but it, you know, I, there'd probably be buses for that too. So we'll just have to wait till we're there. I'm sorry. It's really it's the way I think things. too. <laughs> Anyway, so there's going to be these tracts of land that are set apart for the temple square itself, for the sons of Zadok and the rest of the Levites. Verse 6, it says, You shall appoint as the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 long, adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the house of Israel. The prince shall have a section on one side and the, and the other of the holy district and the city's property. And bordering on the holy district and the city's property extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side, the length shall be, shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall give, rest, uh, give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes." So additionally to all this other land, there's also going to be land set aside for the prince and for the rest of the house of Israel. Um, Notice in verse 8 that the prince is commanded to no more oppress God's people. You know, I I think God specifically said this because back in Israel's history, God was their king. God was their ruler. And yet the children of Israel... They looked at all the nations around them and they said, No, no, we want an we want an earthly king, just like all the nations around them, around us. And Samuel, man, it broke Samuel's heart and said, Samuel, you know, Samuel went to the Lord and said, Lord, this is what they're this is what they want. And Samuel said, Hey, or God said to Samuel, hey, they, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me from being their king. And when they get a king and he gives a list of all these different things that their king's going to do. One of the things, and it's in 1 Samuel 8, 14, it says, And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. This king, he's an earthly king. He's a, he's a human. And when he gets into power, he's going to start taking things from you. And he's going to start taking advantage of his position. One of the worst examples was King Ahab in Israel and his wife, Queen Jezebel. King Ahab saw this plot of land next to the temple or next to his house, the palace, and it was a Naboth. It was a vineyard, and he, and he, and he wanted it, and he tried to buy it from Naboth, but Naboth said, hey, it's been in my family for so many years. Now I, I can't do that. That would be sin. We're supposed to keep it in our families. And it, it says that Ahab went and he cried. I mean, he was like a crybaby. He, he was just, he was moping and, and, and everything, and his wife said, what's the matter, dear? And he said, well, old Naboth wouldn't give me that land I wanted to buy from. She said, don't worry, I'll take care of Naboth. And she had him murdered, and this was one of the kings of Israel. And it just, I just, I can just imagine that the, God is saying this because of all that abuse that took place in that in the prior age. Verse nine: Thus says the Lord God: Enough, O princes of Israel! Remove violence and plundering; execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord. Now that word dispossessing. In the King James Version, I'm reading New King James, but in the King James, it says, take away your exactions from my people. And I looked it up, and it literally means quit taxing my people. So one thing for certain in this age is what? Anybody know? Actually, there's two things that are certain in this age. Death and taxes, right? Okay, you got it right. In the millennium, do you know, and if you read Isaiah chapter 65, and I encourage you to follow along with this, take a look at Isaiah 65, it says, no more will a child live just a few days and then die. Infants are going to grow up, they're going to, people are going to live a hundred years. So death is going to be, you know, people are going to live longer during the millennium. According to Isaiah chapter 65, they're still going to die, but they're not going to die early deaths. And apparently, if you take this scripture with that, there won't be any taxes. I mean, that's, that would be great. Verse 10, you shall have honest scales and an honest ephah and an honest bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. Their measure shall be according to the homer. The shekel shall be 20 garaz, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 50 shekels shall be your minus. So now they're giving some, some money, you know, uh, coin values and stuff. And God says basically you're going to have honest scales. And that really means you're not, there's not going to be any more cheating in my kingdom there. Verse 13 this is the offering which you shall offer. You shall give one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley. The ordinance concerning oil, the bath of oil, is one-tenth of a bath from a core. A core is a homer or ten baths, for ten baths are a homer. And one lamb shall be given from a flock of two hundred from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings, burn offerings, and peace offerings, to make atonement for them, says the Lord God." All the people of the land shall give this offering for the prince in Israel, and then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts." the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, the burn offering, and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. So again, the prince is going to be offering these, uh, preparing and offering these offerings, including the sin offering. So that's why I say, I don't think it's Jesus, but an earthly prince. Verse 18 Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the temple, on the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and on the gateposts of the gate of the inner court. And so you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who has sinned unintentionally or in ignorance. Thus you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month in the first month on the fourteenth day of the month you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten, and on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land of uh, uh, for all the people of the land a bowl for a sin offering. On the seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bulls, and seven rams without blemish, daily for seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a grain offering of one ephah of each bull, and one ephah for each ram, together with a hin of oil for each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall do likewise for seven days, according to the sin offering the burn offering, the grain offering, and the oil. So what we learn here is the Passover is going to be reinstituted in the millennium. Now I just want to go back to, just a, I want to read a quote to you. It's from John Walford. He says, These regulations relating to the use of the temple and its worship can only be taken in their literary, literal sense As any symbolic interpretation does not fit any other chronological period. The detailed regulations outlined in Ezekiel would not make sense unless taken in their ordinary sense as applied to this future kingdom. So, you know, we can get really hung up about the reason for these Levitical sacrifices and rituals in the millennium. And I was, you know, I was praying about this, like, Lord, Why? I mean, I I don't understand, and and we may not understand until it happens we're there. But what I was thinking about, you know, the Levitical sacrifices under the Old Covenant, in Hebrews 10.3, talking about those sacrifices, it says, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, right? Because every year, the Day of Atonement, they'd have to do it over again, you know, and so every year they were repeating these sacrifices under the Old Covenant. Now for you and I raised as Gentiles, not accustomed to Judaism, I think it's harder to make the connection between the sacrifices and Jesus. I mean, let's face it. You and I haven't had to go offering a, you know, we hadn't had to put our hand on a, on a lamb and, and slit its throat and watch the life and the blood drain out of an animal, realizing that I've just transferred my sin onto this animal. And it's this innocent little animal is Dying for my sin. We haven't had to do that, right? But the Jews in the Old Testament, that's what they did year in and year out. And every year, we've got to offer another animal again. It was a reminder to them that that the sin wasn't really taken away. It was just covered over for that year. And so I think for the Jew in the millennium, I think this is going to just be, it's going to be amazing for them because following these sacrifices and rituals is going to be joyful for them. In fact, as we talked about in that temple ground, there's places for the singers. Now, singers during sacrifices, well, again, looking back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, when they're offering these sacrifices, it's not going to be a bummer. I think what they're going to be realizing is, man, we're doing this, but man, Jesus fulfilled this for me on the cross. And I, I just think that this is, and this is my thinking, that this is just specifically Jesus is really wanting to just bless the Jewish people who were who under that old covenant. To say, look at all those things Jesus fulfilled. All those copies and shadows, they pointed to Jesus. And so I personally think this is more of a benefit for the Jewish believer in the millennium than you and I who, you know, we, we, we understand it, we believe it, but you know it's a, the connection is a little bit there's a little bit of a misconnection because we haven't had to do that ourselves but for the jew it's going to mean a lot so once you stand up we're going to stop there and uh we will try to wrap up ezekiel next week but isn't it a? I mean isn't it wonderful that we don't have to sacrifice animals <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and isn't it wonderful that, you know, the Bible says when we confess our sins that not only does Jesus forgive our sins, but he cleanses us. I mean, he removes it away from us. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as he's removed our transgressions from us, they're never to come back against us, to haunt us. And that's only found when we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he forgives us and removes those sins. And and so, again, you know, I, I read this and I go, I, I don't, I have a hard time understanding this, and and I have a hard time thinking about it and just fathoming it. But one day we'll be there, and we'll, you know, today we go by faith, right? And the Bible says, you know, when Thomas put his faith in, uh, when Thomas saw Jesus and he saw the nail prints in his, you know, his hands and he saw the, the, the where the spear went in, you know, then Thomas believed. And Jesus said, "Man, ha- have you believed now just because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed." And that's you and I. We're blessed because we believe God's word is true and we believe what Jesus says here. But you know, one day, that faith is going to be sight. And all this stuff that we're reading, and we go, I don't know. You can come up to me at the millennium and go, you know, you were wrong about that one verse. It's it's different. It's, it's 8.3 miles. It's not 50 miles. That's cool. But one day we'll be there, and, we'll, and our faith will be sight. And I'm looking forward to that. And I honestly believe it's coming soon, folks. So we need to have our hearts. We need to discern between the holy and the unholy in these last days. Amen.